Remembering the great DJs of radio, it's Radio Greats with the live Luke. Today's Radio Great, I've been excited to chat to someone who has enjoyed 40 years of broadcasting as both a local and a national voice of the airwaves. He has been on stations from Radio City, Rock FM and even a little stint with BBC Radio 1 and I'm delighted to find a little more about him in this edition. But before... Uh, I do that. Let me introduce him. Paul Jordan, how do we find you today? Well, you find me in my dining room and uh, you find me hale and hearty and uh, happy to be speaking to you. And I'm very happy to be speaking to you as well today, Paul. And thank (laughs) you ever so much for accepting the invitation. Pleasure. So, Paul, Almost 40 years in the industry, being a national and a local voice on some of the most heritage stations across the country, how was it you got the bug for radio? I really don't know. It was just it was just something I wanted to do. How, how does one get a bug like that? It's, you know, why is someone's favourite colour red and not blue or blue and not... It, it just is that way. But I started getting into music when I was about... 13. So that would have been 1972. So that's always a that's always a, a good year for me musically, 1970, because I loved a lot of what was going on then. And uh, I enjoyed music all the way through the 70s. ABBA really liked what they did. This I still like ABBA now as a band. I love the Eagles. I love Bread. I liked melodic music. And I was always I was always um, to the melodies more than the lyrics and even now to this day I I couldn't I'd find it very hard to sing along to a song because the lyrics just tend to not stick in my head and when I do hear them very often they're a misheard lyric I don't hear them quite the way the singer intended to uh, sing it I hear it my own way but I was always melody driven but I I, um I went to university Uh, I got a degree in law and I was uh, about to start to train as a barrister. And during those years, I got involved with hospital radio and was doing uh, my radio programs for about a year, best part of a year. And I suppose that's when I thought, hang on, maybe radio is my, my thing. Um, I really enjoy this because I really enjoyed listening to music. And at that time, you know, we would have conversations. What would a world without music be like it would just be it would be a a much deader world so I got my first break into radio at Radio City right at the same time I had or I was due to start uh, my final year to pass the bar at Gray's Inn so I had to make a decision the legal profession or radio um and radio had my heart. It was what I what I wanted to do. Really, I just it, it had crept up behind me and overtaken me, and uh, and so I, I took the plunge and, and went into radio. When you mentioned um, the it, it was between law and radio and the radio one, and here we find you now on Radio City. Can you remember that first show you did on City, and what was it like? Yeah, I sent a demo tape to five major radio stations at the time: Liverpool. Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow, and London. And three of them knocked me back. And Birmingham said, we'll give you some freelance work. 
and Radio City called me up. A guy called Wally Scott was the, I think he was the deputy program controller at the time. He called me up and said, hello, Paul. Pick up the phone. Hello, Paul. It's Wally Scott from Radio City. So I'd sent the demo tape up a week before. So in the end, he said, right, okay, could you send me, could you send me another demo tape? And I said, yeah, all right, then I will. Yeah, yeah. He says, you know where to send it. I look forward to, to hearing from it. And we ended the call. And he was phoning me up, presumably to invite me up to meet and have a chat. And I've now got to go around the demo tape route once again. So it's hard enough to do the first time. I was going to have to do it a second time. And I thought, oh, why did I send this? Oh, why didn't I believe him? And I was going away on holiday for a week with my mates around Cornwall. We're in the car and we're setting up camp here, there and everywhere. And I sent the demo tape off on the Wednesday, whatever it was. And I was going on holiday on Saturday. And off we went down to Cornwall. And I said to my mum, mum, I'm going to call you up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday evening uh, to see whether he's called back. And I remember we're in the pub on the Monday evening, seven o'clock. I'm going to phone my mum. Phoned her up. Hello, mum. She said, no, 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 no. I'll call you tomorrow, Tuesday. No, 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 nothing. No. So I called on the Wednesday. I picked up the phone. Hello. She went, yes, he's called. He's called. A guy called Wally Scott. He says he really wants to see you. And when you come back from holiday, he's, got, he's given me the number of his secretary. And you've got to call her up and arrange a time. And that's what I did uh, the next week. Very excited. Went up on the train to Liverpool from London because I was a Londoner. Met Wally Scott. He invited me back uh, a week or so later for what he called a three-day interview where I'd hang around some of the people sitting on some of the DJ shows. And when I got there a couple of weeks later, they put me up for a couple of nights in a hotel. I was in with two other guys. So there was three of us. And I was thinking, oh, and I heard what the other guys were doing. I thought, oh, because I put a lot of creativity into what I was doing. And I thought about what I was doing quite a lot. But what they had was, one, one was old, a guy called Tony Gray. He had a wonderfully gruff voice. He sounded great on the microphone. And I thought, oh, I don't sound like that. And he had a real good wit, very charming. And there was another guy called Terry Underhill, who, um, and they both became sort of my friends for a while. And Terry Underhill went on to have a pretty decent career in radio himself. And he had this wonderfully smooth voice. And he was doing what a lot of radio DJs were doing on the radio. And I thought, oh, I'm not doing that either. But the funny thing was, after three days, Wally lined us all up in the studio, went to me and said, we want to offer you a contract for the, the overnight show. And I thought, wow. So I packed my bags, moved up to London. And the very first thing I did on, on, on Radio City was three o'clock in the morning for an hour. Wally Scott came in out of his bed to babysit me. He left after 10 minutes. I thought, oh, great, I'm on my own now. So after you did the... Uh, overnight. Um, what what was the next show you were doing for City? Well, I did overnights for three months. And at that time, I was kind of living in a twilight world. And I enjoyed being on the air, but then I'd be going home, going to bed about seven o'clock in the morning, waking up two, three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm, I'm an early morning guy. I've never really been a night owl. So I was a bit like kind of zonked all the time. And after about 
six weeks, seven weeks, my bosses called me in and said, we'd like to give you the late night show. And at this time, I was really having doubts about being in radio. I was really thinking, you know, because I was homesick, desperately homesick, badly, badly homesick. I was finding Liverpool rather unfriendly to me and the people at the station a little unfriendly. I realise now they were just intimidated by me, I think that's what it was. I'd come in, a bit of a splash, people talking about me behind my back sort of thing, you know, he's this, he's that, you know, and you don't hear those conversations. Just that when I used to speak to people, I always kind of got the feeling that they wanted to get away from me, you know, not that I've always thought myself as very friendly. So I was I was having real concerns about City. And they offered me this late night show, which I'd never, I would like to have done any show on, the, on a radio station, but not late night. Because late night DJs those days were like, hey, welcome to the late show, and there's all this. And that was just not me. I, I, that sort of presentation. I, want, I wanted to put a bit of pizzazz into it, do things, mess about, have fun. That's what I wanted. And that didn't fit a late night format. And they offered me Monday to Friday late nights. Uh, and I said, I'm not a late night presenter. And it was Wally Scott that was the two of them, Roger and Lot. And Wally said, we don't want you to be a late night presenter. I said, right, okay. So um, there is an hour of the show called the Peaceful Hour, which was a kind of had become a bit of a tradition since Radio City began in 1974, and people talked about the Peaceful Hour, which was just dedications and love music. That's what it was. And I wasn't a dedication type of guy. I wouldn't read out dedications because I thought they were boring, and everyone else was doing it. So I might read out a couple of dedications during the course of an hour, and I do them in 15 seconds and they said you've got to keep that but everything else around it is you whatever you want to do I said right okay so I started the late night show it was called it had, it had a name it was called downtown and, and 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 it was downtown with Paul Jordan and I had these jingles downtown with Paul Jordan and it was like and I started doing it and somehow uh, this is 1982 big then were Duran Duran Spandau Ballet Culture Club scene there was a lot of teeny bot type groups out there at the time. And I kind of compartmentalized the show. Uh, it was a four hour show. The first hour, 10 to 11, was I made it very teeny bopish 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds. The music reflected that as well. 11 till 12, I kind of, sl- I kind of felt in my, in my own mind it was becoming more adults people in the car coming back from the so I kind of changed my presentation a little got rid of all the t-bop stuff by 11 o'clock they should be in bed now because they got school the next day 11 till 12 was more late night a couple of funny stories things that I might you know that I perceived older people people my age 20 somethings 30 somethings might find interesting to listen to 12 to 1 was the peaceful hour that took care of itself and one by one till two I was always so knackered on the show Anything went basically, and very often at one till two hour, when you feel like there are less people listening and the bosses weren't listening, you sometimes let your guard down, let your hair down, and very often that hour of the show I think was the best hour. I certainly had the most fun in that hour. But I got into a routine in the first hour of slagging off Spandau Ballet to all the Duran Duran fans and doing doing the same vice versa the next night. People and then people writing into me saying. I hate you and slagging off 
Simon Le Bon and oh, I never did so. I never did any such thing. I deny it on me. I never did that. I never did that. No, 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 no. I never did that. Then the next next record, I'd be slagging off Tony Hadley, Spandau Ballet, and praising Simon Le Bon. I just just took the piss, took the rip out of all of these little schoolgirls, so all the time, completely denying everything, agreeing with them, and then just being really sarcastic. And it just, I, I was enjoying myself because I was just having fun. And then people started to buy into that. And the 20 or so letters that I inherited on that show within the year were up on 300. And I never, they weren't dedications. They were people, people giving me material for my show. I'd get home, have a taxi home, get home for about 2.30, go to bed, up about 11 o'clock. And I used to get into work about two o'clock in the afternoon. Two till six, I used to work on, 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 the, on the basics of that show that night, opening the mail. And as the mail got so heavy, it got really difficult going through the mail. And I, I got very, I got very quick at opening the mail. I'd rip the letters open. I had my highlighter, my yellow highlighter. I quickly looked through the letter, not looking for can you say hello to. Never did that. I'm looking for maybe a, a quip they might put at the end, so I could say, I, I don't know, I, you know, I'd look for something that I could use on on air, and I'd I'd find it either almost immediately. If I didn't find it, it would go in the bin pile, because I was using my listeners uh, for material. And I think, I, I think it was working because they wanted to give it. So I'd look for that comment, you know, P.S. Maybe there was a P.S. P.S. Was that, was that you sitting outside? Was that you I saw sitting outside uh, Tesco in Walton Road this afternoon, three o'clock, with a can of lager uh, sprawled out on the floor? Was that, was that you, Paul? And, you know, I'd highlight that and, and I'd put, you know, my re- response to that might be something like, you know, shh everyone and then on to quickly on to the next letter so i just use what i could from the letters and i don't i don't think there was anyone doing that at the time plus the all the other bits and pieces that i would put in my little sketches my little jokes and stuff you know um the show really started picking up and before too long i was being voted uh, among the best djs not in the northwest but in the entire country from some people like Smash It's magazine and number one magazines. My, my name was getting known in other parts of the country, not just Merseyside and the Northwest. Prestigious and getting voting. You also mentioned Radio One, and it's uh, July of 1985 um, comes yeah. along, and you're invited back down to London and down to Radio One. So, how was it the Radio One gig came about? I sent a demo tape into Radio One in probably tail end of '83 when I think I was on top of my game. I was doing really well, and I sent what I thought was a great demo down to Radio One. I thought, here we go, because that was always the aim to get to Radio One. And here we go. Got a letter back from Johnny Beerling couple of weeks later saying, no, thank you. I went, right, okay, great. thought, okay, I'll leave, I'll leave it six months and I'll try again, sort of thing. 84 time, sent another demo. Another, what I thought was a good demo, got the response back. And he said, no, no, thank you. He says, listening to your tape, I was absolutely amazed to hear that you didn't enthuse about the music at all. 
fucking enthused about the music, which basically meant at no point did I say, oh, I love this record, you know. I thought, but I do enthuse about the music, but I hadn't on my demo tape. God, that's twice I've been knocked back now. I'll never get in. I can't, I can't go a third time, can I? And I told, uh, told a couple of mates, there one of my friends there was the head of music who had worked at the BBC and had friends there. And uh, I, was, I was speaking to so I got knocked back from Radio 1 again. That's the second time. I, I don't think. He said, don't you worry. He says, they know about you. I know they know, but I said, how do you know? He says, well, I've been speaking to my mate and he knows so-and-so and your name's been mentioned. I said, so you think I'm on some sort of ladder there? He said, absolutely. He says, it's just a matter of time. He said, bide your time for another few months and then send another demo tape. So I, I put together a third demo tape and, and I, I gave it for the, I never showed these things to anyone. I was not one of these, hey, look at this. I was always like, keep quiet about it. But I, I my best mate, uh, at the time in Liverpool, was a guy called Andy. He worked at Radio City. He was an engineer there. And I play. I said, "Do you want? Do you want to listen to this? Have a have a look." And he listened to it. He said, "That's not you." I said, "But it is me. It's on my show." He said, "No, that's not you. That's not you at your best." I said, "Right." He said, "Let me make a tape for you." I said, "Right, okay, all right." He came back to me about a month later with the demo tape. He said, "This is you." So I listened to it. The first thing thing was me playing Bruce Springsteen, dancing in the dark and crashing the vocal, which I never did. I never did. I did on this because it came crashing the vocal. And I thought, right, technically not a good start. But what I did, and I didn't even know that I'd done this because he recorded some of my shows. I'd crashed the vocal. And what I did was stop the record, hit press the stop button and went, in the evening, blah, blah, blah. I said, not happening. We can't crash the And I put the needle back at the start of the record and this time did a perfect talk-up. And that was the first link on the demo. And I thought, right, okay. Now I listened to the rest of the demo, which was about four minutes long or so. And I thought, right, do you really think? He said, that's you. That is you. Send that down and see what happens. So I said, right, okay. So I sent the demo tape down and I got a, it's funny, I was down visiting my mum and dad in London a few weeks later and I was nine o'clock, I was going to get my train back to Liverpool. I was walking, just say goodbye to my mum, was walking past the, the hall, out to the front door, the phone rang. And I'm one of these people that never picks up the phone and I pick, as I walk by, I pick up the phone, hello. And the voice said, oh, hello, I wonder if I'd speak to Paul Jordan. I said, uh, speaking, who is this? He went, it's uh, Johnny Beerling from Radio 1, the main man. And my voice, oh, oh yeah, hello. <laughs> and I felt my legs kind of go weak. And I had to sit down on the stair. And he wanted, he said, can you come and see me? I said, yeah. He said, can you come and see me now? I said, I can't, I can't see you today. He said, why not? I said, well, I've got commitments. I've, I said, I can't, I can't do it. He said, right. Okay. He said something like, uh, well, I'm up in Manchester in a couple of weeks time. Could you come over? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I met him in Manchester. And one of the first things he said to me was one of the things that really impressed me was that you, you said no to me. You put professionalism and your radio station ahead of me wanting to see you about a job at Radio One. And I was really impressed by that, how professional you were. And so I went to see him at uh, in Manchester, and um, it, it went on from there. I went down to went down to London to meet Doreen Davis and stuff. But the decision really had been made by the time I went down to London. He was gonna he was going to take me on board. He he liked the cut of my jib, as it were. And that's how that's how it started. That would have been that would have been uh, April 
the Easter time 19, 1985 and I started on July the 1st. Talk about a new two-pound note. I haven't. I don't know about you, but I haven't got used to the one-pound coin myself yet. I always end up going with it, walking around with a big bulge in my in my pockets with all these one-pound uh, coins in there. You do know what I mean, don't you? And the Wimbledon excitement is certainly reaching a peak this week, the second and final week of Wimbledon. McEnroe, I see the number one seed is through, but the number two seed, Ivan Lendl, is out. He was beaten yesterday by that Frenchman, Henry Leconte. He's the guy now, if you remember. He knocked out John Lloyd earlier this week. It's going to be good today, you know, because Henry Leconte will be playing that teenage sensation, Boris Becker, from Germany in the quarterfinals. And that's going to be one heck of a good game, you know. What? You want a prediction from me? You do? Well, Boris Becker. Yeah, I think Boris Becker will do it. And a nice cartoon in one of the newspapers today. Just picture the scene for a moment. A picture of a newspaper editor in his office talking to the actor Sylvester Stallone, who's the new uh, American superhero by the name of Rambo now. And Rambo's dressed up with a couple of hand grenades, a machine gun, a crash helmet, knives, a machete, the whole caboodle. And the editor's saying to him, well, Rambo, we'd like you to interview Madonna's new boyfriend for us, please. And you mentioned July the 1st, uh, 1985, your Radio 1 debut and your first show. Is it, am I right in thinking you were sitting in for Gary Davis? Absolutely, yeah. And what was that feeling like? Well, great. I felt good about it. It was a sunshiny day. It was the bit in the middle I was doing for the, the next two weeks. So I went in on a bit of a splash. I wasn't, I was heralded and just stuck in there and um, I wasn't like, you know, Saturday night or whatever it might be. And then after that, I was doing the early breakfast show. And after that, I was doing the midi. So for three months, I was solidly booked up on all the programs. So I knew what was uh, pretty much what was ahead of me. But doing, doing that bit in the middle, uh, the, the, doing Gary's show, um, all I was worried about was my mum and dad were listening, particularly my mum. And they were hearing me live for the first time I never the fact that I was going from an audience of whatever it was we had at City which was substantial to whatever it was at Radio 1 at the time I don't know but they, they talked in terms of millions didn't bother me at all I'd much rather you know Paul do you want to do you want to do a radio show and broadcast to 50 people or 50 million people well 50 million people please that's I'm the broadcast I, I, it's worth my while doing that you know I've done gigs and I've stepped out in front of 100,000 people. And I've also done gigs when I've stepped out in front of eight, nine, ten people. And I can tell you, the eight, nine, ten people, much harder because you kind of think, oh, God, no one's turned up. It's kind of embarrassing. So numbers have never, ever faced me, the more the merrier. But, uh, yeah, I was excited, a little bit nervous. Not nervous, nervous, but a little bit nervous. Maybe just... Uh, what do you call it? A nervous anticipation, slight trepidation about it, but not a bag of nerves. Excitement more than nerves. The butterflies. But butterflies. A little bit of a little bit of butterflies. But they go. They went after the first leg. But all the way through, thinking, oh, God, my mum's listening to this. What's my mum's mom, going to think this? Oh, she's going to think that's rubbish. Oh, you know, never, while someone's was at Radio 1, never really left. Sorry much indeed, Frank. <laughs> Jordan, 1053, 1089. Hello. Radio 1. For my proper speaking. 
your voice on now. Welcome along, Paul John. <laughs> and it's time for me. Hey, listen, you threw the book at me yesterday by trying to get me going. Can I try and get you going tonight? You can get me going anytime you like. A farmer has 23 sheep. All but nine of these sheep die. How Hang many on, has he got a, left? A, a farmer's got 23 sheep. sheep all, all but, but nine, nine of that these. That means nine are living. So that's nine from 23, which is uh, um, 14. You were wrong. A farmer has 23 sheep. All but nine die. How many has he got left? All but nine. <laughs> You're going to press something there, aren't you? And so you mentioned for the first three months uh, doing cover, and then it's October of 1985. Steve Wright uh, moves to do a Sunday morning show, and you are now on the lineup, uh, hosting Friday and Sunday afternoons. That's right. Yeah, Steve was doing Sunday to Thursday anyway. He had been for a while, and Mark Page is doing Fridays. And Mark Page left the Friday. And I took over the Friday and the Sunday. I was on the schedules there, good and proper. Yeah, so I was like Steve Wright in the afternoon on Friday. But my style was, I remember when I met Steve Wright the very first time, and uh, Steve and I got on well. But my style was kind of like Steve Wright's in some way. He was very creative. I like to think I was very creative. He said to me, Paul, I've nicked some of your ideas. I said, I thought you had, because I'd be doing stuff at Radio City and then a few weeks later, they'd turn up on his show. I thought, and of course, then it was, they were Steve's then. They weren't mine anymore. And all of a sudden, you're copying Steve Wright. And the first time I admitted, he, the first time I met him, he, he said that to me. And I said, oh, do you know, I bloody well knew. He says, yeah, they all think they're my ideas now. But um, he was doing Sunday to Thursday. And I was kind of... I was kind of brought, I, I kind of felt I was brought into Radio One because of what I was doing. But when I got to Radio One, I couldn't really do that really anymore because Steve was doing it and he was he was the number one man really. So I was kind of pushed find your own feet. So I, I kind of did uh, on on that Friday show. I did a thing called I, I can't remember what I called it now. Uh, Favorite fives. And, and um, certainly Radio 1 wasn't doing anything like this at the time. I was asking people to call in and vote live on the show, you know, and Radio 1 was all was a lot of letters, and what people had been writing and DJs would read out letters. I was asking people to call up and this was, I wanted you to vote for Today It's ABBA. Vote for your, your favourite ABBA song. What we'll do is get all the votes that come in. There used to be a bank of operators that will actually take the votes. A lot of vote, A lot of people were calling in. And uh, then what they would do is count up the votes. To, I went on air at 3 o'clock. I probably opened up the lines at 3.30. And we took votes for an hour, hour and 15 minutes or so. Then the votes were uh, counted up, tabulated, and come up with the top three, I think it might have been. Uh, your top three, your three favourite ABBA songs, your three favourite U2 songs, your three favourite whoever it might have been songs that particular week. And I thought, no, no one's no one's done that already on before, using telephone as an expedient way to get in contact with your listeners rather than, than, than writing letters. But the show did very well. I can remember, I'll say things as it is really, uh, um, I, without trying to blow my own trumpet, but... But the, I took over the show, and the show's figures weren't as high as Steve's, that's for sure. Uh, within three months, they were pretty much the same as Steve's. In fact, higher than on one or two of his days, and pretty much the same on, on another couple of his days. So the, 
the show did very well. And my producer for the Sunday afternoon show came up with the idea of the treasure chest and it opened up Sunday afternoon. I opened up with this treasure chest sound effect and what's on the treasure chest this week and opened up, ah, we've got Huey Lewis. We've got the playlist for the songs were effectively songs that were in the charts six months before a year or so before, because very often they get played a lot when they're in the charts, but when they fell out of the charts, they weren't really heard on the radio for a while. So the the ethic of this show, really, the ethos rather of this show, was uh, to play those songs that were hits six months ago. That so when when did that show start? You said it was October, was it October eighty five? So let's think. You know, so we are the world. Africa, uh, USA for Africa was a big hit. April um, eighty five. Phyllis Nelson moved close, closer was also a number one around that time. So you weren't hearing them on the radio much anymore certainly on, on not on radio one so i played those songs and that was the the ethos of the show May, May the 2nd, 1986 comes along and you present your final Radio 1 show. Was yeah. it, was it, a t- was it tough to say goodbye to Radio 1? Yeah, yeah it was. It was uh, because it, the, the, that part of my master plan wasn't supposed to work out that way. The fact is, uh, uh, I had a pretty tough time at Radio 1. I had a pretty torrid time. I'd gone in there as a guy well lauded. And I, I, I think maybe, I mean, following me were the Nicky Campbells and the Simon Mayos of this world, educated at university, kind of new breed. And I was supposed to, I think, be the first of those. But I was getting a bad reputation, I think, at Radio 1, because uh, through no fault of my own, by the way, I've, I've, I've always been a happy go lucky, pretty happy go lucky chap, easy to get, get on with. I've always made friends. But, you know, I, I kind of gained the reputation at Radio 1, I think, among people, erroneously, as the guy who was using Radio 1 to get into television, because television was coming calling my way a lot. I turned down a good couple of uh, TV gigs because it clashed with Radio 1. There was a, an ITV, what was it called? I can't even remember the name. And I, the equivalent of uh, Blue Peter, but on ITV. They wanted me as one of the three presenters on that, but it meant I had to give up. It was an exclusive contract. It meant I had to give up Radio 1. wasn't going to do that. Radio 1 was important to me. And then um, I got asked to audition for Children's BBC uh, in the broom cupboard, did the audition, thought this isn't, this isn't for me. And what they said afterwards was, uh, Paul, we'd like to um, offer you. They gave me the terms of the deal and everything. We'd like to offer you this gig. Uh, it's Monday to Friday. 12 till 6, 12 midday till 6 p.m. Um, 120 pounds a day, or 120 pounds. And we'd really like to offer you this, but we feel that maybe you're not into it. So why don't you have a think 24 hours, um, have a think about it and get back to us, but don't leave it any longer than that. The job is yours until you say no, but get back smartish because we've got another guy who we're interested in. And if you don't take it, we're probably going to offer it to him. So um, I was on Radio 1 that afternoon, uh, probably filling in for the drive time show with Bruno Brooks. Uh, I remember going back to Radio 1 and I 
went into the production office, into my producer's office, and I phoned my manager up to tell him how it went and said, they've offered me the gig. He said, yeah, what are we going to do then, sort of thing. I said, it's not for me, John. I, I, I Really, it's not for me. I, I don't. He said, right, I'll let him know. I can always remember uh, it was a Monday and it was about five to four or whatever, and I was at home with my mum. We wanted to see what this new CBBC was all about. We turned on the television, got radio, a BBC One on, and uh, the announcer said, and now, for the first time, we go over to the broom cupboard and CBBC, bang, there was the guy. In the, and I said, that's where I was. And I looked at this guy and I thought, he looks like me. And my mum, after a few seconds, said, he looks like you. And the guy started talking and said, of course, it was Philip Schofield and what a success he made of he made up that. But lots of television was coming on. They, they were just two, two things. There was bits and bobs coming up all over the time. And I kind of got this reputation then because I hadn't moved into my own place. I'd moved back in with my mum and dad. I, I mentioned to some of the secretaries that I, they'd say, what sort of music do you listen to at home? I said, I don't. I don't listen to music at home. Why? And one of them is quite disgusted that a Radio 1 DJ didn't listen to. I listen to music in my car. I said, I don't have a stereo kind of making it. But I didn't go in there. Well, I'm living with my mum and dad and I'm busy. I mean, and she was like, oh, I think that's disgusting. <laughs> okay. And uh, she obviously told my big boss, Johnny Bearding, and got back to my manager. My manager said, you know, you've got the reputation now of being a Radio 1 DJ doesn't like music. And then I got a reputation because all of these uh, TV people were coming calling. Do the, Can you do this? Can you do that? That I was a Radio 1 DJ. I became pretty quickly a Radio 1 DJ who wasn't really interested in music and was only using our small radio station as a stepping stone for, for television. That's completely wrong. And I could feel, feel a real pressure, that and other things, a real pressure building. I felt I was being judged all the time. I couldn't do anything. Why? All the producers, and there were executive producers, one would say, he should do more of this. The next one would say, no, he should do less of that and more of this. And the third one would say, he shouldn't be doing any of that. He should be doing more of what I think he should be doing. And, and, you know, I had so many people trying to produce me from afar. You can't. So I'd be going on air, really, you know, nervous. I, I don't mean nervous on air as such, but just the turmoil in my mind that everything I was doing just wasn't right, that I couldn't please anyone. And my, my manager, who was a very good manager and, and was very successful, he was like, you know, just do what feels good for you, and just blow the rest of these guys, you know, because even he felt sorry for me. Even Gary Davis felt sorry for me. I was getting it from all angles. And then uh, they dropped my option on, on Radio 1, dropped me off the schedules from May. And I said to my, my, my manager, who'd had the conversation with Johnny Bailey, I said, something I'm sacked. He said, basically, but but they're but they're offering you if you're interested, because I'd done the, the mid-evening show, 7:30 till 10, which was playing all of this non-commercial music. I'd done that for about three or four weeks, fit in four or five weeks during the course of my time there. It was the show before John Peel. And it was just not my sort of show. I, I, you know, I was playing all this worthy music, all this stuff that from bands that may not get a, a, a recording deal, from bands that had a recording deal but were very cultish. Um, 
interviewing bands, basically interviewing, playing music that I wasn't really into. Now, I wasn't really into that music at all. I liked what was in the charts. I was into that sort of music. And um, I remember John, my agent, my manager saying, oh, but I know you, you, you're not into that. And I said, I, I kind of would. I kind of would take it just to stay at Radio One if that's my if I have to sort of thing. And he said, he said, he said, we've got too much on the TV stakes, too much on the TV stakes. Let's go down, you know, using expletive, and uh, and we'll 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 you'll go directly to TV. And I thought, oh, well, it's goodbye Radio One then. But um, what we didn't know then was that uh, Radio One was the foundation stone of everything that was going on for me. When Radio 1 was taken away, everything else imploded. Something I'd like you to help me with this summer on Radio 1. What I want to know from you is your all-time favourite summertime oldie and the reason as to why it's your all-time favourite summertime oldie. Maybe it holds some sort of special memory dear and true to you. Think of it, let me know what the memory is and drop a line into me. Paul Jordan, Radio 1, London W1A1AA to set the ball rolling, as it were, this first week of mine here on Radio what I thought I'd do is ask some of my colleagues here on the net. You mentioned about when you left Radio 1 and all these television jobs that imploded straight after, but um, you continued with the love of radio, and how was it uh, the Radio City door reopened again? Well, the Radio City door opened because I had to get back into the swim of things, because it was like, well, TV, TV, TV was always like a a carrot that was being dangled in front of me and, and am I going to get this? You are. Yeah. I, we really want you for this. You're the guy, you know? And it was like ultimately a disappointment because something would go wrong. That, that, that was happening. That was happening a few times. I, I did a couple of uh, what they call pilots, a pilot for uh, uh, the biggest independent company that did a lot of TV shows uh, called Action Time. Again, they were based in Manchester and the manager of the owner of Action Time, Steve Leahy liked me very much. We got on very well, and he liked what I did on the television. And he was saying to, and he was the king of the TV quiz shows. Everything was an action time production. And uh, I think Catchphrase was one. And you know, this was a big, big independent company that was really kicking. And here was the guy Steve, who was friends with my manager John. And Steve is saying, "We've got to get a vehicle for Paul." We've got to get him a quiz show. So you kind of think, well, if the main man's saying that, it's just a question of coming up with the right vehicle for it. And I did a, I did a couple of pilots. I did a pilot for Action Time called IQ with the studio audience and stuff. And it was, I thought the program was okay. And they had the contestants and we did it as like, I remember going and rehearsing it with Steve for about three days before and it was recorded Sunday evening. I remember I, not long, not long after I'd gone back to Radio City to take over the breakfast show. There. So this was 1988 sometime. And it was, it was deemed that if I go back to City, who, who really wanted me back, if I go back to City, a lot of what was developing for me was Manchester-based because they, they were around the country and Manchester was, was really coming through. So I was only in Liverpool. So I could just nip down the motorway, as it were. So it kind of made geographic sense to not be in London and be in Liverpool and back in, in radio and this sort of thing. I always wanted to do both. And I did this, this quiz programme called IQ, which seemed okay to me and I really wanted to do it. And it was the pilot and it was going to be, and it was like, you know, as it would be if you were watching on the television. And the pilot, it was, Steve took it to um, 
they, they do a they do a thing on the presenter. They do a thing on the presenter afterwards. They ask all the audience various questions. What do you think of the show? Did you think what worked for you? And they've got some questions on the presenter as well. And I can always remember John about three days later calling me up. I was uh, I picked up the phone. And he says, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, they're really pleased with it. You did really well and all this sort of thing. He said, you got 100%. I said, what's, what's, what's 100% mean? He says, and he said, they asked the audience very, and your your score was 100%. He said, Steve couldn't believe it. I said, so I got 100% positivity. Everyone gave you top marks. He says, if you get over 50%, it's considered good. You're the only one he's ever known who's got 100%. I thought, wow, this is great. Fantastic. I love it. 100%. And, uh, but what happened was when they tried to sell it to uh, ITV, ITV didn't want it. They didn't think the format was good enough. And it, they tried, uh, I think, BBC or wherever else they tried. And they also thought that whatever they thought about me, whatever they said about me, um, they didn't think the show was good enough. So IQ went nowhere. And Steve was still saying, got to get a vehicle for Paul, but it never transpired in the end. So after after a period of time, which probably was two to three years of that, kind of thing, oh, yeah, oh, we've got this, you know, yeah got this job for me oh yeah and I was kind of passing it because there was a lot of pretension at in television and a lot of oh darlings oh isn't it lovely and a lot of sucking up a lot of creepy crawlies and I was never that sort of person so maybe I wasn't a right fit like I say I wanted to do it um but maybe I wasn't the right type of person I didn't have that ambition I didn't I didn't have deep down inside what was needed. The beginning from Seal, 96.7 City FM, your best music mix. In just a little while, we should be giving you details of how you can win a trip, a fabulous all-expenses-paid trip to New York. New York, New York, what a wonderful town. Washington, D.C. and L.A., Los Angeles. Details on how you can win those prizes, fabulous prizes they are as well, on City FM in just a little while. You did, you, had, you did make your mark in the north of England on the radio, as we said, with City. And then in, was it 93, you move up to Preston for Rock FM? Yes, it was. Yeah. This was to take my first management position. It was 92, actually, July 92, to take over breakfast there. Um, now... I've done a lot of breakfast shows, but it's not my favourite time of the day. It's mid-morning. And I can remember with, with Radio City, though I really liked Radio City, loved it my first time there, really liked it second time there. I was having a, a whale of a time at the time, these years, 1991, because I had a real good friendship circle. And uh, I had a couple of my mates that had moved in with me. I, I owned a house in West Kirby and they moved in with me. But I was offered a management job, head of Rock FM in Preston. And uh, they wanted me to take over breakfast. I said, I don't want to do breakfast. I'll do, I'll do mid-morning. And they said, well, it's a deal breaker, really. We really want you to do breakfast because I've been very successful on City's Breakfast Show. But to be quite honest, getting up early in the morning, though I can do it, um, when you've got a responsibility, if, I, if I've got to get up in the morning because I'm going for a jog or what have you, know, I can easily get up at half five, six o'clock, easily do that. I love that time of the day. 
and I get up early these days. I've got up early all of my life. But if I've got to get up early because it's a responsibility and a duty for me to do so, because I've got to be at work at silly o'clock, I then don't sleep very well through the night. I have a, a I sleep, because I sleep like that, but it's kind of like a fractured sleep. I have deep dreams and then wake up 20 minutes later the clock and I do the same again so I'm waking up two three times every hour going back into a deep sleep never never have the alarm wake me up even these days I can say I need to get up at 4 30 and um, no matter what time I go to bed I wake up at 4 30 because I don't know subconsciously something goes on down there but that meant and then you go you go and you do your breakfast show it's seven till ten I think now from memory on, on breakfast by ten past ten I'm exhausted by one o'clock, I can't even keep my eyes open because I'm not sleeping well at night. So I didn't like working breakfast shows because I was exhausted. Come the weekend, I'm sleeping like 72 hours over the weekend because I really am making up. My body's making up time. So I never liked particularly breakfast for that particular reason. And very early on in the Radio City breakfast days, I was thinking, I've got to get off this show. I don't want to do it. And I wanted to do mid-morning. So when the chance came to go to, to Rock FM to do to look after the DJs there and, and take on a management role, I thought, yeah, I like this. Because I had said I wanted to do that. And now put your money where your mouth is. But you've got to do breakfast. And I thought, God, bring up. You know, 6.30 start. And I'm in Wirral, West Kirby, Wirral, 40-odd miles away, an hour's journey. 45 minutes, a bit of it's motorway, but 45 minutes away, I think, God, you know. So I am denied, and I, I took it, I went, I went for it. And um, that was the start of my, my, my management career because, again, it was, I kind of made a success of it. Um, uh, I've always kind of been a people person. I get on well with people, I think. Um, my management style was collaborative. I was never one of these, you do what I say and that's it because I know best, because I know that's not the way to do it and I don't always know best. But um, I, I, I'm a believer in teams. Very often is very often my start, starting point, you know, as a manager and as a managing director and stuff was get the people, get good people around you, get the best people you can. And if they're better than you, all the better. Um, because you get kudos for bringing really great people in. Oh, that Paul Jordan, he knows how to pick great people, doesn't he? Whereas other people are like, I can't employ that guy because he's better than me. You know, I think that's completely the wrong way of doing things. It's all about teams and working together as teams, I think. And very often my standpoint is, right, we've got to do this or I've got an idea for that. And I haven't got a clue where to start. That's why you guys are here. So can you help me, please? What do you think? You know, and that's often a good way uh, uh, to start. Yeah, it's 974 Red Rose Rock FM. Uh, we are only ever one great record away from another great record. And if you don't like that first great record that we're playing for you, don't worry, because the next great record will be even greater to compensate for stuff like that. Three minutes to wait, three to wait on a Wednesday morning, September the 1st it is today, the Paul Jordan Breakfast Show. Giving away loads of dosh on the breakfast show this morning. But um, 
Rocket then went, for, went from strength to strength. What I did over the period of two months or three months, I got great guys in on air. I, I thought Rocket then was fifth in the market, fifth in the, in the, in the radio audience market when I went there in 1992. It was the leading commercial radio station in its area, and it was fifth in the market behind Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio Lancashire, and its own sister station on AM, Red Rose Gold which was number two in the market. Radio One was number one. Rock FM was fifth. It should have been number one. No excuses. If it was number two, that's still not good enough. Those commercial radio stations had to be, on the FM signal, they had to be number one. And we got it to number one uh, with me on breakfast. I got Mike Toulon in from uh, Radio Air, Leeds, to do mid-morning. I would have loved him to do breakfast, to have done my breakfast show, and I would love to have done his mid-morning. But I couldn't, they would just wouldn't let us move. I, and, and I was heading up Rocket then. Had Rob Charles on uh, lunchtime, and I got a guy up from a demo tape in the south called Simon Ross on drive time. So I, I, I went to Rocket then. Simon was the final piece of that jigsaw around beginning of December. 1992 uh, and I got to I think it was July time 92 when I started there so during that time the lineup had changed we rock FM through 1993 Jeff Graham came in as a program director John Myers left to take, uh, to take over CFM in Carlisle he said I'm really pushing hard for you to become the program director he said I really think it's you you are the guy and he pushed hard. And Mike Henfield, who was the managing director, came to me and says, my God, I've had it from John. He's really pushed hard. He says, he says, I think you're doing a great job, Paul. I really do. But being program director over marketing, over everything other than the managing director and anything other than sales particularly, but a huge sway on sponsorship and promotions, which is part of the sales. He says, I think you're just doing a great job. We love you on breakfast. Um, just want you to continue doing that great job. And next time, maybe program director, definitely. But this time, is it a step too soon? And what do we lose if you have to come off air? And it's all starting to work. And it was starting to work because the figures were going up. And within a year, we were number one uh, in the market. And within two years, we were so far ahead of everyone else that the total audiences on um, on Radio Lancashire, uh, Red Rose Gold, Radio 1 and Radio 2. Those audiences combined, those radio stations that were ahead of us, those audiences combined were nowhere near Rocket, Rocket M's single audience on its own. It wasn't even 50%. When we looked at the graph, it was like Rocket M was there and all of them put together were like down, down there. Radio Lancashire, I know because my girlfriend at the time worked at Radio Lancashire. She was a journalist there. She said that, We've had a crisis meeting, and the crisis meeting is, is all about what do we do to stop Rock FM? They've just taken all of our audiences. And really, I think we're just being left with the older type of the audience. But we were huge, 15 to 55. No one, no one got near us. And it stayed that. It's, Rock FM stayed that way through all of the 90s. And, and it came down a little bit with a little bit more competition. But again, it was rocking the northwest all the way up till, well, 
all the way through the pretty much all the way through the noughties as well. So it was it was a a Goliath of a station in terms of performance. It was it was in, in boxing parlance as a radio station itself. It was middleweight. It was a middleweight because it had an ostensibly a one point three million TSA. Uh, Cities was two point one. Piccadilly's was three. You know these were big big radio stations, uh, but rock wasn't small. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a heavyweight. But what it was doing was punching out of its class. I'm just definitely getting better at that. Van Halen, jump. Good morning, it's a Wednesday. Good looking Wednesday as well. Another lovely sunny day in the offing, which is good news, makes us all feel happy. It's uh, nine minutes after eight on Red Rose Rock FM. Paul Jordan, Breakfastshire. Silla Black sings on top of the pops tomorrow night for the first time in 16 years. Now, I know you're interested in this. Believe it or not, she last appears on top of the pops in 1977 in a lineup that included the Sex Pistols. Her new song's called Through the Years, and she says it's going to be a Laura, 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 Laura fun. And, you know, I just, you know, after watching, after watching Silla Black on shows like Blind Date. I just can't take her singing seriously anymore. What was your favourite moment of being with Rock FM? Um, we really got our charity uh, with the help of John's story. I gave him 100% backing because I believed it helped a local child. We really got that off the ground. We made a ton of money for local children in crisis. Very proud of that. John made that work. He was... Uh, the real brains behind the operation. But um, like he said, it couldn't have done it without you. So I'm very proud of that. We changed a lot of people's lives. That's always a good one. Uh, we broke down relations with, I was always very good at making relations with people where we had no relations before. The uh, newspapers uh, had always been against us because we were rivals. They would never write a good news story about us. They'd always... Um, be first in the queue to write a, a, a bad one. Like when we did our first uh, party in the park at Avon and Park in, in, in Preston, which was a huge success. We had 80, 90,000 people turn up. All the LEP did at the end of it was write about what mess there was after the crowds were there. And uh, I remember the managing director at the time was furious about that. That's because we didn't have the uh, relationship. But after the Jordan Charm Offensive uh, was conducted, um, we became really good mates with the LEP and they were writing good news stories about us, not bad news stories. Same with Blackburn Rovers. They were a Premier League football team. When I became managing director at Red Rose Radio, I went to see them, got on famously with them. Let's do some stuff together. OK, we'd be open to the idea. What sort of, you know, because we did have a relationship that we, they, they did buy airtime with us. They did buy ads with us. but. They didn't like us until until I went along and, and hit it off with them immediately, with one guy particularly, the um, the uh, chief of operations there. And um, it was like, oh, we should work together. Um, and yeah, I think I think we should, Paul, we should work together. Have you got any ideas? I think I might have an idea. And the idea was to put um, party, in, party in the Park. It was at Ewood Park, we called it Party in the Park. Party at Ewood Park. We put that on during the uh, summer when the football season had closed down. It wasn't an easy thing to do. And, you know, me telling you earlier on that you need good people around you. So, okay, I came up with that idea and I had the vision to carry it through, got the relations going. But 
I committed ourselves to it as managing director. I went back to my boys at base, called the meeting with the program director and the head of uh, the sales director, the head of music, and uh, right, guys, got this great idea that we're going to do, all right? I've committed myself with Blackburn Rovers. We're going to build a party in the park on them. All the profits are going to... The profits, when we take our cut, our legitimate cut, and when they take their legitimate cut, the rest of the profits are going to go to help a local child. And the first thing I, I, I said, I remember turning to Mark Kay, our head of music, and Mark and I gone, but he's a good guy. I said, Mark, it all starts with you. You've got to get us the artist. Yeah, thanks a lot. No, Mark, seriously, I'm being serious here. If we don't get the artists, this whole thing fails. And if we don't get the artists, it means that you have not done your job. And you have failed. Please, Mark, don't fail. It's down to you. You've got the most important, everything else we can work out. We can get, you've got the most, and he did, he had the most important job and he did a fantastic job. And it was a fantastic day. We made, we made nearly half a million pounds. Um, we took a cut. Um, Lapland Rovers took a cut because we pushed it a lot on the air. So we had legitimate airtime costs. So it was good for the station. And something like, um, £350,000 went into our Help a Local Child charity. And then the notion was on then, me as being one of the trustees that would come in every three months, get the trustees in, they've got all this money sitting in the bank, let's get this money out there to help children in crisis. So it, it it was very, I was very, very pleased with that as well. Whether that's my highlight, I don't know, but it's it's obviously you know, in the top 10, it's obviously well in there. It was, it was, a, it was a great thing to do. Well, and I'm having a great time this morning. I'm thoroughly enjoying myself. Your job is so much better than my job. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to swap, so I'd probably agree with you, actually. I'm all right, actually. I like it, though. Thank it's you. a great thrill being back on the radio, albeit only for a couple of hours, and you'll never hear from me ever again. Which is possibly, I don't know, a good thing. I don't know. At least for me, because I've got a mortgage to pay and things, you know. But so what I'm going to do now, as I'm controlling the desk, I, I'm pushing all the buttons and the faders and the controls. What I'm going to do is what we call a segue. And uh, this is how it goes like. Oh, hang on, that's wrong. I don't want to play that yet. I'm going to play that later. Hang on. <laughs> I like talkability radio. I like people in the pub saying, you know what they're doing on Radio City? Do you know what they're doing on Rock FM? That guy in the morning said this. and I didn't didn't bother. I needed, it needed people talking like like the trick I did with um, Kev Seed on Rock FM in 1997 before the general election. We had Tony Blair um, down the line. This is a week before he's about to be the prime minister. And all the other radio stations are putting their news editor in to do um, uh, political, you know, what are you going to do on your policy on health and all, all this worthy stuff. So we're going to do something different. I said, Kev, come here. We're, we're going to interview Tony Blair. And he went, White. I said, I'm I, I don't I don't know anything about politics. I know you don't. We're not going to ask anything about politics. Oh, so uh, so we're going to ask him about hobbies and stuff like that. I said, no, we're going to ask him the most ridiculous questions that we possibly can come up with until they pull the plug and then realize it's kind of a piss take, really. Because I was in the studio with him and I'm pushing the right scribbling notes, you know, pushing them forward. Tony Blair. Um, yes, Kev. Um, if you were absolutely guaranteed, this is his first question, if you're absolutely guaranteed by God himself that no one would ever find out 
no one would ever find out that uh, you, you, you did this. Which supermodel would you like to get with? And Tony Blair went, Kev? And Kev said, remember, Sherry would never find out you've been guaranteed by God. Which supermodel would you have? He said, Kev, I cannot answer. Okay, okay, next question. Do you iron your underpants? Well, what sort of question is that? Does it, and we got about four questions in, and Alistair Campbell, who was with him, pulled the well, We're not having any more of this nonsense. And, uh, okay, bye, bye, bye. And, we, and then us laughing in the studio on the tape. And then yeah, that was going to be played out the next morning. But just don't, just don't touch it, just, just play it out. And I went out uh, to grab a sandwich or whatever it is. And I came back um, uh, half an hour later. <clears throat> and Ken Bennett, who was our publicity guy, who was with us that day, he's on, I said, they're all waiting for me when I came back. They're all waiting for me. And it went out on the press release. And, and um, this, something like, joke DJ asks joke questions to possible new prime, prime minister or whatever. Oh my God, look what's happening, look what's happening. And the head of news, Jamie, Jamie Thomas, Jamie, Jordy, we've got to, we've got to put some, some, something out here. We've got to put, I, I said, he said, this is terrible, terrible, terrible. Because he, Jamie, again, another good guy. Jamie was a bit miffed when I said, sorry, Jamie, you're not doing it, Evis. There's all the, all the other news editors, sorry, I want to get mileage out of this rather than we've got Tony Blair and other people's heads. I said, give me this stuff. Ken, give me the stuff to it. And I just let me read this. I, I, I had 10 minutes to read this. And I got halfway, there was two pages, a press release. And uh, I got halfway down the, and they're all standing there waiting for it. And I got halfway down and I said, this is good, isn't it? No, no, no. And I read, I got that. This is bloody good. This is the best thing we've done. We've pulled a real, I didn't think it'd be so good. He said, everyone's going to be talking about us. We've taken the rip out of the new, what will be the new prime minister's way ahead in the polls. Everyone's going to be talking about us. What harm has it done him? Nothing. What harm has it done us? Nothing. Kev, everyone's going to be talking about it. And of course, over the next few days, we were everywhere, even on French TV. We were in what the papers say were on the news bulletins. I was on, and I never, I, I didn't like doing these interviews. Like I said to you at the start before this, even though you'd never believe it because I talk a lot. I, I did an interview on Radio 5 on their drive time program about what we did and all this. And they were laughing at what we did. And I, I told them, this is why we, we did it, to get such a reaction. And we have. And that reaction, you know, even decade end of the year review, there it was, there we were. You know, I, I watched some program, Great Moments in Political History, and we were mentioned in this and a radio station, Rock FM, Kev Seed, the DJ, and blah, 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 Tony Blair. Oh, and how we laughed. But and I, I thought it was a brilliant bit of, a brilliant bit of PR. It, it really, really well. I didn't see it going that far. I just thought, let's do something different and we can have a laugh. Rocket Man. 821. Gary White with us again this morning. He's uh, telling jokes. He may be a great singer, but he is not a great joke teller. Oh, go on then, if you must. Go on. Hey, baby. Listen. You know, got a little joke for you. Yeah, go on. Go on, tell it. Did you... Did you ever hear... Did you ever hear about the... About the car... With the... Yeah, baby. Let's get this joke on. Come on, don't get sidetracked. Come on. You and I, baby. Oh, come on, Barry. About the car. Yeah, about the car. With, with the 
attention. Yeah. 2006 came along and you leave Rock FM. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, it was um, the radio station was changing. I was managing director. I'd been very successful as manager. Rock FM doing very well. Not as well it was doing in, you know, in years previous. Admittedly, audiences had, uh, had come down, but I, I think uh, the parent group were finding that audiences in Key 103 and Radio City and all of these places uh, their audiences were coming down too. It seemed to be a sign of the times because there was more media that was being used that was taking time away from uh, the radio station itself. Though having said that, I never, I, I never really quite got that because when the radio audiences came out, all radio listening was going up. So it was suggesting more and more people were listening to radio. All, but uh, but Rock FM was still pretty strong. But the, the it was all about gain driving profitability even more so. And let's talk about let's talk about Rock FM moving to Manchester, being amalgamated into the key studios, key presenters, taking over radio or Rock FM slots, uh, because they knew not all people would want to move from Preston to Manchester. So the church would be closed down. They were just trying to maximize profit on all it would meant wide scale redundancies. And uh, they talked to me about this and uh, my ideas about it. Of course, they knew that I wouldn't be particularly for it. I was subtly sounded out about the Radio City job as managing director. If I wanted to move there, I had a young family at the time, which meant and we, we just bought a house in Preston and we, we were settled there. My, my wife comes from Preston. And I thought, it's only Liverpool. The journey's not too bad. But I knew as MD, and it was it was coming up to the year of culture as well, Liverpool having won the year of culture. I'd have to spend a lot of time in Liverpool, and I thought, yeah, Radio City is a station I love. Maybe in many ways loved it more than, than Red Rose Radio, but they were my two radio stations. But I was very happy. I was like king at, at Red Rose, really. I, I, I just, you know, as, as someone... One of the uh, other managing directors said, you, you make it look so easy. I'd been at Rock FM for six years as, as, as managing director. And um, things were just really changing, really changing. The radio world was really changing and everything was amalgamating and things were coming together and <clears throat> shared programs. And, uh, and Key 103 was going to be the mainstay on that. And, and I remember my boss saying, can you get involved with Key 103 as well? I said, well, they've got a managing director there. What am I going to do? Just turn up Tuesday morning and I'm here to help. What's that going to look like? I'm, you know, well, you know. So uh, they, they was, I think they were sounding me out and then uh, called to a meeting a month or so later. And uh, as soon as I walked into the meeting and I saw that the people that were there, I thought, all right, this is the end of me. I am losing my job. I wasn't sacked. You're sacked. We don't want you, blah, 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 sort of thing. It was like, it was explained to me, We've had these conversations with you. We are moving in a certain direction and you're not getting on board with us. So where can we go with you sort of thing? And I'm there about to be let go, as it were, compromised out of, out of, the, radio, out of the radio building, as it were. Um, and where can, where can we go? And I, and I found myself thinking, ah, oh, shit, didn't really want this. And still feeling at the time, okay, all right, then if that's, if that's the way I must go, that's the way I must go on board this path. I felt that I could have said that. 
but it wasn't coming out of me. I was saying, instead of saying that, saving my life, as it were, I found myself saying, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry as well that it has to be this way, but I understand and la-di-da-di-da. And I can remember speaking like that for 20 seconds. And I say, you know, parting of the ways, no, no, absolutely no problems on my side, no bitterness. And uh, sometimes we have to do what we feel we have to do. I understand that. Anyway, what's the deal? I remember saying that I was compromised out of the business, not the building. I wasn't let out. I can, um, I can remember my mate, a real close mate of mine, uh, who was also a managing director. He phoned me up uh, a couple of hours after because they had, this was uh, 8.30 in the morning. And I drove back, told my wife. And uh, I said, actually, I'm quite excited as to what I can do next. But I was in a happy position. I didn't have to, at that point, I didn't have to work One dad to any other dad listening, happy Father's Day, and don't we deserve it? Hello, I'm Paul Jordan here on Smooth Radio Lake District, and the relaxing music continues. BGs and Phil Oakey soon, but we start with a bit of Dusty. So leaving Rock in 2006, Paul, uh, you then start working for various different stations, including Tower FM, Wish FM, and then also Central Radio. Uh, But uh, in this decade, we found you on Lakeland Radio. So do tell us, how did Lakeland come about? Well, after a few years of doing nothing, twiddling my thumbs and just getting older, I I had my hobbies and stuff and doing that, but I kind of felt as if I'd retired too early there was more to do and after a few years of that i answered an advert for a radio station called uh, lakeland radio because I, I felt i felt too proud to go to any of the other radio stations around my like rocket fm well i'd be too old for rocket fm but the am stations in liverpool or i felt too proud to go back and ask them for a job just in case um i didn't get it and then then I'd be like, you know, I'd feel a bit of a laughing stock. So I was waiting to be asked. I was rather hoping that I'd be asked because I was asked by EMAP if I'd continue the show I was doing on a Sunday afternoon um, after I'd left EMAP and I said no. So I thought kind of there might still be an interest there. But because um, after all on air, I, I, I know it was, you know, I'd had some successful times. But um, so I didn't ask just in case they said no. And then they go like, I guess he's been on the phone, Paul Jordan. Oh, Paul Jordan, that old has been sort of thing. So I never went back in that direction. But I saw this advert for Lakeland Radio, a bit of a trek up to Kendall. And I, I sort of inquired about it. I said, you know, would you be interested in me, you know, to, to do a show? And they got back, I said, be very interested in you to do a show. Do you want to come up and see us? And I did. And I drove up and I thought, it's a, it's a something like an 86 mile round journey. I was doing all, doing a lot of the, all of their cover, all of that. So I was up and down that motorway for a while. I was thinking, Right, I do like being on the road. I want to be on the road. So I said to my boss, I said, look, if a show at the weekend ever comes up, and they were, I was filling in on Saturday breakfast show and uh, 7 till 10, and uh, I said, Dan, if the, if, if the show ever comes up, I'd be really interested in taking it over. He said, right, okay. And about two weeks later, he called me up. He says, um, do you fancy doing Saturday breakfast? So they'd love to do Saturday breakfast. So I had my one show there once a week. And that was me. That was me, that was me and my element. Because I always said once I'd finished radio, I'd like to do one show at the weekend. And that would be it, just to keep my hand in. And I ended up doing that. And then the Lakeland Radio turned into smooth radio. And smooth bought it out. 
and uh, all of the DJs um, could smooth uh, smoothboard out a lot of radio stations, and uh, and and um, a lot of people got the chop. And I thought, well, so so I went into the meeting with thinking, well, you know, if they chop me, they chop me. I, I don't I don't need it. I'd like to. I remember saying to the guy at the end, and then I, I said, look, you know, whatever happens, if 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 you have me on smooth, I'd really be pleased and really be happy. And I, you know, and and if you decide I'm not for you, fine. I, I'll I'll still say I'll still shake your hand and say I wish you all the luck for the future. I know you've got a decision to make. And and uh, a few weeks later, after they made their decisions, and everyone's like worried about it, they came to me. They asked for a meeting with me. And uh, everyone had to go to Manchester or someplace for their meeting. But they came to me at Lakeland Radio because I was um, doing a show and I was uh, finishing at two o'clock or something. And they had a meeting at 2.30 of them. And uh, they came to me and I went in and I was thinking, I wonder if I was hoping I would, they'd keep me on. And they, and they said, um, they said, uh, of course, we're going to keep you on. And I went, great. And, and uh, they went to shake my hand. Uh, and I said, you can't, because it was a glass glass uh, office. And yeah, it had a partition at the lower end. And to see them get off their chair and, and shake my hand, people were looking. They were looking at people's faces to see what was being said in there. And they're reading body languages and sign. And I said, are you sure you want to shake my hand like this? Because you, you, you've just said you've got to keep it quiet. And he went, oh, God, yeah. yeah. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll, let's get down on our knees and I'll shake your hand there. We did it underneath the partition. Welcome on board, boy. I said, really pleased. And um, so started Smooth again, a really strong brand. Again, not my style of presentation, but I can just talk about the music and just do what I could easily, I could do what I was easy, that easy. Um, no effort whatsoever. They didn't want you to put any effort in. They just wanted it to, you know, come naturally. And listen to all of the presenters on, on there. It's just, this is, that was, it's smooth and, you know, Virtually no personality, but what a strong brand it is. There is a radio station that anyone would be able to tell you what it stands for. And um, I, you know, bearing in mind it's not my sort of presentation, I enjoyed my time at Smooth. But that all came to an end when um, they got the go-ahead from Ofcom to amalgamate everything down in London, basically. They just uh, they just kept breakfast shows and they regionalised. And uh, they're like a... a a national radio station now, aren't they? And they're, but so they're, 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 they were good to work for, good people to work for. I enjoyed my time there. Well, if you've ever seen the video for that, you'll know how effortlessly cool those two are. Linda and Cecil, Womack and Womack, and teardrops. Rain around this afternoon, quite heavy at times. Temperatures now around 14 Celsius, about 57 Fahrenheit. And that rain will dry off overnight tonight with a little sunshine tomorrow morning when John Pye is on smooth breakfast. But more rain tomorrow afternoon. That's when Tim Littlechild <laughs> returns to the smooth drive home. Tim, I'm only joshing. And highs again tomorrow uh, of around 14 degrees. Right, let's see if we can uh, get someone to win £10,000. Smooth 10K. Nevertheless, a new station in Southport was opening mm-hmm. called Sandgrounder Radio, where we find you uh, doing the golden hour every lunchtime and also a Sunday afternoon show. So I've got to ask. I... It's that Sunday afternoon show is what I really like. I, that's what, you know, when I said I wanted to do a, a show at the weekend, yep. the Sunday afternoon show that I'm doing now is pretty much what I have in mind. It's an oldie show. 
And um, it's 60s, 70s and 80s. That's all I play. And it's about it's chart hits and chart information. And it's very derivative of, of uh, the style of Alan Freeman, who I thought was a wonderful disc jockey. <clears throat> and um, it's quite rat-a-tat. There's no, there's very little character in there, really. There is, there is character in the way I might say things, but there, and I, I don't stop to read out dedications or tell a joke or anything like that. It's all about the music and the planning that goes into it. I do it every Saturday morning, so I'm, I'm allowed to record it um, from home, which is great. I've got my own setup and everything, and I do my recording on Saturday morning. I record the Golden Hours, which I came up with the idea. It's, it's funny, you know, when you come up with an idea and I come up and I went to, to Andy Hilbert, who's the owner of the station, and I said, you know, because Andy, again, sounds me out from time to time about the way, because I've been involved in radio a lot and run radio stations. You do pick up some wise tips along the way. And Andy's often come to me and said, Paul, what do you think? What do you think? And I was saying, you know, your schedule, you, you know, you're changing your schedule around too much. I never wanted to do a daytime program there or a daily program. And, and, and I said, the, the, what you've got, it's, it's a bit, it looks a bit messy. And the only way you can fill that would be if you did something in that hour, then that will tide things over. And, you know, because Sandground, the radio was, was putting on pretty much a full 24 hour seven schedule. And I said, who, who are you broadcasting to at night? At one o'clock in the morning, who's actually listening? You know, uh, because it, it, it's not wealthy enough to be in Rasia. So we don't really know. Um, it, it's, in a, it's on a decent footing now. But when advertising airtime was very, very tight and everything was run on a real tight budget, you know, why are you having shows on at 12 midnight? You know, um, and um, I, I, got, I went back to him with an idea of, of some sort of hour slot and I gave him some various ideas. That could be all Motown, that could be all disco, that could be all what have you, or, or it could be the greatest hits of all time. And by the greatest hits, um, and he really liked this idea, the greatest hits of all time, the biggest of the big. So we're talking about, and again, crossing the decade. So we're talking about Elvis Presley, it's now or never, Bohemian Rhapsody, Queen, Dancing Queen, ABBA, uh, I will always love you, and I and I drew up a list of 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 the biggest hits. Imagine, careless whisper, drew up a, a list of them, and big biggest of the big. Nothing in there that will water the bigness of the big ones down, as it were. And I, I came up with about four, 50, 50 monster hits, and I thought, right, that's it. And then I then I thought, right. Okay, how often are they going to get played? And I thought after about three weeks in this hour, there's going to be so much repetition. It's going to be, oh, God, not that record again. I thought, no, it doesn't work. So um, Andy really liked the idea of the greatest hits. And then then he asked me if I'd do it. And I said, all right, nah, you know. Someone's a, but it got, it, I, I, I said yes because it, it now transpired I could do it from home. I didn't have to travel into Southport to do it. And with Solid Gold Sunday, which is the Sunday show, um, one till three in the afternoon, certainly for the first for the first two years, I was doing the sports show Saturday afternoon live. And then when I was in on the Saturday, I would then record the Solid Gold Sunday the follow, for the following day on that Saturday afternoon. But um, I, I, it just suddenly dawned on me after that. After. It was when, when I made the move to Smooth, really, 
I said to Andy, I can't do the Saturday show anymore. He said, I thought you might. I said, I can't, mate. And I couldn't actually because I was doing a Saturday afternoon on Smith. So it was a total clash. And I said, what I'll do is I'll record, rather than go to Southport, uh, I'll record Solid Gold Sunday from, from Smooth. And um, then it, it dawned on me, I could record it from home. Why don't I record it at home? Can you set me up? I said, Randy, can you set me up with all the stuff I need, the playout system on my computer, and I can record it at home? And he said, yes. So for the last three years, I, I've, I've not been to Southport at all, last three to four years, and I record Solid Gold Sunday at home. And it is the, I just really like it. It's it's not It's not me. At my best, when I was cracking gags and messing listeners around and putting on jolly japes and wheezes on air and people didn't know what the hell they were listening to. But I was certainly having a great time. It is a show about the music and I make it about the music. And it, but some, some of the old me is still there. There's no segues. I talk in between every record. I have little bits that I put in to emphasise what I might be saying. And um, it's the music of the 60s, 70s and 80s. And uh, if Andy allows it, uh, and if the radio station's still going, I'll, I'll be doing it for hopefully years to come. Farewell is a lonely sound. That's Jimmy Ruff. And I think that's uh, one of the saddest wor- words in the world. Goodbye. Goodbye is a really sad word, isn't it, when you come to think of it, and all of its various connotations. And uh, without getting too deep and profound at this early juncture on the Golden Hour, uh, before Mantronics and Got to Have Your Love. Yes, it's Paul Jordan here on Sandgrounder Radio. Lovely to have your company. It's your lunch with a punch. Here come the carpenters now. Say cheese. It's your sweet, sweet smile. Well, I have to ask, Paul, um, what advice would you give to anyone who is choosing radio as a career? I think you'd have to, you have to find your own way. Radio has changed an awful lot through the years. Uh, I, I, I don't listen to much radio. In, in, in truth, I've never listened to much radio. The radio I listen to mostly is talk radio, talk sport, LBC. I listen to that. But I find that... If you listen to the same radio station again and again every day sort of thing, after a while, you do get fed up with it. So variety is certainly the spice of life. The radio has changed. Presenters, I, I, I've named some presenters earlier on in this, in this conversation that I all think are really very, very good presenters, really top-class presenters. And when I'm in the car now and I'm flicking from radio station to radio station, there, there's very few people. I, I, it's not really made for me. I mean, I listen to heart. I think it's heartless. There's no connection there. No one speaks to me one-to-one. No one connects with me. I always feel as if they're shouting, talking at me, not talking to me. And and then when they do their little personality bit, I kind of think, so what? You know, so you had a ham sandwich for lunch today. And I hear lots of things like that. But there you go, heart. What's the preferred listen to, to my wife, Michelle? Heart. Heart is a phenomenally successful brand. That's what I'd call it. And I think we want to know that as brand. And what their DJs are doing is fulfilling the brand. And the brand has been sold left, right and centre and is very, very successful. Smooth is another one, both under the global name. So um, it's not for me. It's not what I would listen to. I don't think I, I would never... If radio was like that when I was growing up, I would never have got into radio. Um, it, it doesn't have that sparkle that, that I like. I like to go for, and I like to 
listen to myself. But anyone getting anyone getting into radio now these days, you're just going to have to find your own way. Finally, Paul, as uh, dedicated to Julianne, one of your regular listeners from the City Days and has continued to listen to you from to Sandgrounder, she asks, who was your radio great? I've never had radio heroes. I've never, I'm, I'm not the sort of guy who, oh, he's my hero, she's my hero, I want to be that person. Never been in awe of anyone. Not that sign of kind of guy. But the first, the first radio DJ I ever really got to like is on a national basis. Alan Free, always, always really liked Tony Blackburn's voice. Fantastic voice. Never liked what he did through the seventies. I, I thought he was awful on Radio One. To be quite honest, it was just annoying. But then I, I started hearing his soul show on Radio London in 1983 time, whenever it was, playing soul music mid-morning. And he was just irreverent. He, it was like, because he was angry. He was angry as being shoved out of Radio One. I think he was angry. And he didn't care what he said on air. And I thought then, now he's sounding good. So all of a sudden, here's a DJ sounding good with the most wonderful voice. And I just think, he's even now on Radio 2, um, He's sounding so so good. So his sixty show, he just sounds he just sounds so good. So I think um, he's come from for me. He's come from nowhere to really being up there. Chris Tarrant, his breakfast show on Capital Radio for a few years. He did it for he did it for too long, and he he, he just went off the boil. But certainly, eighty eight to ninety two, ninety three, ninety four time, he was just fantastic. That is a breakfast show. That was something. And I think. When I was doing breakfast on Radio City, when I started on um, Rock FM, I started doing some of his tricks. I started talking all over the jingles and letting them run underneath me rather than playing them. Being really, I, I, it always came naturally for me being slick. Anyway, I could I could do all that, and um, uh, and I thought I just liked the way it sounded, the way he did it. His jingles were better than mine, I would say, but I was doing it, and there was certainly no one else around my area doing it. Uh, so, and, and it must have sounded good. So no one ever said to me, it just sounds naff that. So I, I kind of nicked that off him because I thought it sounded good. So Chris Tarrant is, is up there as, as a presenter. The guys I worked with through through the, the noughties, I, uh, I thought Mike Toulon was really good um, when he was at Rock FM, really liked what he did at Rock FM. Mike's always sounds a bit like this to me, a little bit there. You know, well, here we are. But he's, he's, he, he's very talented. Like I said, Kev Seed is very talented. Kev Seed, very talented if you have the right people around him and you give him the right input. Stick him on his own, not quite as good. But, hey, shows were built about around Kev. There's also DJs that I really do respect and have, res- have always respected, not because they're the best, not because they're particularly slick, just because they've got the likability factor. People like them on the radio. It's, it's like they've got an X factor, an indefinable X factor. Well, Paul Jordan, thank you ever so much for joining us on this edition of Radio Greats today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, I 
did mention to you yesterday that I'd get one of OMD's old ones out and give it a whirl on one of the cruises. And Jordan always keeps his promises. OMD on cruise number two from 1984, talking loud and clear. You also heard China Crisis, wishful thinking from 84. And Paul McCartney from 76 and let him in. And T-Rex from 72, get it on. Four songs, four hits, but one is the odd one out. Which one and why? Give me a call right now. Remembering the great DJs of radio, it's Radio Greats with The Live Luke.